2: No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: When astronaut Scott Kelly went into space, it wasn't just the view that changed. His gut microbiome changed, too. Northwestern University researcher Fred Turek gave us the lowdown from up high. We happen to think the changes in the microbiota are likely due to changes in the gravity situation, not due to radiation, but that is speculation, hypothetical at this time. I I look at it this way, we're just beginning to understand what is the effect of the role of the microbiota in affecting our health and disease. Scott's gut microbiome reverted to normal once he came back to Earth, which goes to show that bacteria are opportunistic. How they come and go on us and in us is a relatively new field of study. But another way that bacteria adapt to new environments is that they mutate. And that's something we've known for a long time. Yet antibiotics are becoming less effective. Did we ignore warnings that this was to come I'm Seth Shostak.
1: I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science produced at the SETI Institute. That single-celled organisms shuffle their genetic makeup in order to survive is an example of evolution in real time. In fact, 75 years ago, eminent biologists knew enough about mutating bacteria to warn that misuse of antibiotics could breed drug-resistant strains. What did we do with that nugget of wisdom? In this episode, the rise of superbugs enlisting an old therapy to fight back and deja vu all over again. Has complacency led us to ignore today's infectious threats? It's battling bacteria.
3: There are knowns and unknowns when it comes to our overuse of antibiotics, and we'll get to the consequences of ignoring the knowns, such as the rise of virulent superbugs. But first, an unknown, a novel and a weird way that antibiotics might be disrupting body chemistry. This speculative idea is slowly morphing into an entirely new body of research.
4: Yeah, this is really kind of a new idea. I haven't really seen anything else out there that has examined this, and we're not sure what to expect. I'm Jennifer DeBrun. I'm a microbiologist at the University of Tennessee, and I'm interested in microbes in the environment and, in particular, how they participate in decomposition and biodegradation.
1: We met in her air-conditioned campus office, not on the grounds of the often sweltering outdoor lab where the microbes that she studies roam, a forensic training center known as the Body Farm.
4: The Body Farm is sort of a friendly term for the anthropology research facility that is operated at the University of Tennessee as part of the Forensic Anthropology Center. It's an outdoor human decomposition laboratory. So it is a couple acres of wooded land near the University of Tennessee campus in Knoxville. And it is a facility that allows us to do replicated empirical studies of human decomposition particularly motivated from forensic questions about better constraining time since death. So if we can understand the processes of decomposition, uh, we may be able to better tell how long decomposed remains have been in place in the case of a crime scene.
3: The oldest and largest body farm in the country receives about 100 donated bodies a year, none of them embalmed.
4: Donated bodies are laying primarily on the soil surface, although there's some burials as well, uh, depending on the research questions. And they're generally placed in ways that help us to ask questions about things that affect decomposition. So, for example, if we want to know how clothing affects decomposition, some may be clothed and some may be unclothed so that we can make that comparison experimentally
1: curious note over the course of our conversation, whenever I referred to the facility as the body farm, Dr. DeBrun replied using its academic title, the Anthropology Research Facility. So I wondered, did she resist the macabre nickname? <laughs> uh,
4: not, not me, but um, I know they resisted the term body farm for a while because it, it's very, well, the argument was we don't grow bodies.
3: So here's what happened. Dr. Debrun and her team were going about the research, doing a routine study of human decomposition, if you can imagine such a thing being routine, when they noticed something puzzling, a caution that what follows includes some graphic description.
4: There was one particular study where we had placed five donors on the ground at the same time. They were all about the same size and weight. They all started decomposition on the same day. They were in the same area, so they had the same local climate, same temperature, humidity. All of the things that you could think would affect the decomposition rate were the same for these five donors, and yet they decomposed at very different rates. So some would bloat and liquefy fairly rapidly, whereas others just seemed to take a longer time to get to that stage. Some were scavenged more than others. Scavengers would go to some bodies and repeatedly come back to those same individuals and completely ignore others. There was just this great amount of variability that we couldn't explain based on differences in temperature or humidity or all the things we thought were primary controls on decomposition.
1: What it suggested is that some factors intrinsic to the bodies were affecting decomposition determining whether the bodies were decaying faster or slower or were more or less attractive to scavengers. What could it be? Jennifer DeBrun turned her attention to the contents of our medicine cabinets.
4: If we are taking drugs, be it antibiotics or other pharmaceuticals, we're altering our body chemistry. And really, human decomposition is just a series of chemical changes in our body as we're remineralized, as we're broken back down into our components. So it kind of makes sense that if we're changing our chemistry, it may change those patterns and processes of decomposition.
3: We've studied how antibiotics affect the living, whether it's how they fight disease or how overuse breeds drug-resistant bacterial strains. We've even studied the effects of excessive use on farm animals. But the University of Tennessee researcher had stumbled on one question that has not been studied. Could the drugs also affect what happens to our bodies after we die? ¶¶ Jennifer DeBrun and her team are outlining a research project they'll soon conduct at the university's anthropology research facility, The Body Farm. The researchers don't yet have answers, but like you, they have a lot of questions. We've met the scientists, now let's also meet the study's unwitting participants whose behavior might be affected by the drugs they've consumed, The Body Farm Scavengers.
4: The ones that we deal with primarily at the body farm are raccoons and rodents. We get a lot of raccoons and rodents at the body farm. In other areas, you often get avian scavengers, like vultures are a common scavenger, but for reasons that we're not quite sure about, they don't seem to visit the body farm as much as our four-legged scavengers.
1: And you have smaller animals, and I would assume you get down to insects and then certain bacteria. Can you take us through that list of critters?
4: Sure. Well, we also get a lot of insects that like to visit decomposing remains, and in fact, a lot of insects sort of make that their incubator for their young. So we have flies that will lay eggs or even larvae in decomposing remains, and those larvae, which we tend to familiarly call maggots, they'll consume the tissues, and that's how they grow when they're young. There's also numerous beetle species and other insects that like to visit the bodies. They'll either feed on the larvae or feed on the tissues themselves. So it really is a whole suite of organisms that get energy from a decomposing body. I like to think of them as these little pop-up ecosystems. You have one resource, a decomposing body, but then you have all these organisms that can benefit and a whole little food web or food chain that develops from that one body.
1: It's an unusual uh, phenomenon to observe, though, isn't it? Because it's not usual that a body would be left outside to the elements and to the raccoons in particular.
4: That's true, but it, it depends on your definition of usual, since this idea of using caskets or cremation is really kind of a modern Western concept. You know, it's not something we've done throughout history. And we do see a resurgence in interest in more environmentally friendly burial practices, You know, we see people interested in natural caskets, people starting to recognize that some of our current burial practices might be introducing additional chemicals or plastics or other waste products to the environment and seeking some of these more natural decomposition afterlife options.
1: Now there is a slightly gruesome scenario in my head, and I I really need to ask it. I can, everything that you described, the beetles and the maggots and the vultures, I could see what they would do with with a dead body. I'm having trouble picturing the raccoon, Now I think of raccoons as coming to my back porch and eating the cat food. Would a raccoon gnaw at a body, or would they take off part of a limb? What are the raccoons after?
4: The raccoons really like the muscle tissue and so what they'll actually do is they will create a hole in the skin or create a way to get in and then they'll actually reach in and pull out muscle tissue. So they're really after that. They're not taking whole limbs like you would think like a coyote or something would do. These raccoons are really just after the the muscle tissue inside and they'll kind of pick away at it. They're very dexterous. So what are some of
1: the big questions that you're asking as you go into this and again this is just beginning. You're just starting to lay out this experiment. You don't have the answers yet.
4: Yeah, so we want to see if the chemistry in the donors, if that suite of drugs and drug metabolites, whatever whatever the donor comes in with if that is having an effect on the insects. So do we see traces of these drugs being transferred to the larvae, for example, and does that change the types or amounts or the amount of decomposition by the insect larva? Similarly, we're going to be looking at the scavengers, and so we want to see is there a correlation between the suite of chemicals in the body and whether scavengers are visiting the body or whether the scavengers are more or less active on the different bodies. And then we're also looking at how that suite of chemicals affects the microbes in the system. So we know that microbes are heavily involved in decomposing the body. We know that Early on in decomposition, the gut microbes in particular inside the host play a big role in that early breakdown of tissues, and we know that these drugs affect our gut microflora, our microbiome in life, and so we want to see if those changes that happen to our microbiome change the speed or trajectory of decomposition post-mortem.
1: And there are many ways that this could have an effect on how the body decomposes, because if you have one pharmaceutical in your bloodstream, that's one thing. But if you have more than one, you're taking more than one drug, or if you're on day five of the antibiotic as opposed to day one of the antibiotic, or maybe you've had two weeks of antibiotics and then you, you pass away a week later, there are so many variables.
4: Exactly. And and we know that drugs have synergistic and interacting effects in living humans, so we can very reasonably expect that it's going to have similar effects post-mortem as well. We know, for example, that some types of bacteria are really heavily involved in decomposition so clostridium is one group of bacteria that we know proliferate after death they just kind of go crazy in the gut after the host dies and then are quite present in the body and in the soils in the decomposition environment afterwards so if you had a drug an antibiotic that was affecting the amount of clostridium in your gut to start that's something that could potentially change its ability to decompose. It's hard to convey
1: to listeners the discrepancy between imagining the body farm, which is not where we are right now, we are in your office here at the University of Tennessee, and looking at your office, which is quite tidy, and I'm trying to picture you (laughs) at the anthropology research facility in a kind of grim, it fe- you know, it, it's you're surrounded by bodies, it feels like it would be grim, and it would be dirty. And it feels so different from where we are right now, sitting in your in your office. And I just want to give listeners a sense of the discrepancy between what we're talking about and where we are right now.
4: You know, one thing that I'm always left with after a visit to the body farm is that it's actually a really peaceful place to work. Yes, you have decomposition going on. Yes, it's very smelly especially in the in the hot humid summers of the southeast but there's Kind of this this quietness to it that actually makes it a really nice place to work Mm -hmm. doesn't bother me anyways
1: (laughs) clearly it doesn't bother you and then just as i say that then i think of the role of these scavengers and they have a prescribed role and they do it really really well so in that way it is very tidy so Mm -hmm. they're all participating in what is a very important role they're janitors in a way If they weren't there to take care of these bodies, the world would be filled with dead bodies.
4: Yes, decomposers are critical to how all of our ecosystems function. We need these decomposers, these things that are okay with dead matter, to break down all of the dead plants and animals. Otherwise, we would be up to our eyeballs in dead animals and dead plants everywhere. Uh, So it's a really important role. And I think one of the things that really fascinates me about this system is that it is this sort of ecosystem cleanup crew that comes in and breaks down all of this organic matter to make it available for the next round of plants and animals. And it's really neat to watch pop-up ecosystems come into play to recycle all of these dead things back to where they came from.
1: Then I take back pointing out the discrepancy. There's a lot in common with what's happening on the body farm and here in your office. I mean, those uh, scavengers are playing the role of tidying up. So in a way, both this, this organized office that's inside an air-conditioned building and the hot body farm that's off just a couple miles from here, a similar process is taking place, a, a kind of organization and putting things in their rightful place. Is that too much of a stretch?
4: No, that is a great way to put it. It really is.
1: <laughs> well, Jennifer DeBrun, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Thank you.
3: Jennifer DeBrun is a microbiologist at the University of Tennessee.
1: Seth, what was your reaction to this story?
3: Well, I mean, there's, there are certain gruesome aspects of it. Uh, on the other hand, I kind of wonder why I say that, because we all know what happens to us after we die and whether... They, Put you in a steel vault or they just lay out on the ground, the ultimate result's the same in both cases. So I don't know why I was a little discombobulated.
1: Well, because we don't talk about it frankly. I mean, frankly, we don't talk about it and we don't talk about it frankly.
3: Yes. Well, that's right. And, you know, as a kid, I was exposed to the lyrics of the worms crawling in and crawling out. And I didn't like that idea even back then when it was a very distant uh, possibility.
1: Our overuse of antibiotics also affects the living, of course. Next, a medical mystery prompts one scientist to try a cure for infection that predates antibiotics.
3: This episode, Battling Bacteria on Big Picture Science.
0: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone.
3: I generally don't like talking about my own medical issues, but then again, this one resonated with what we're talking about today. A few weeks ago, I began to have some really excruciating stomach pain, and within hours I was in the hospital, an intestinal blockage. Now, frankly, this is something that happens to me every couple of years, so I wasn't terribly worried, and it usually goes away by itself within a day. But the tests showed that I also had what the doctors termed an elevated white blood cell count. In other words, an infection. So soon, the nurses were adding a new bag of, of something to the IV pole that stood near my bed. The bag just appeared. I didn't see it coming. It contained an antibiotic, although I didn't find out what kind. I felt like a lab rat, after all. They were doing things to me, but I wasn't sure what. So I joked with one of the nurses, Hey, does this mean that I'm spawning some new superbugs, antibiotic-resistant strains of bacteria? Was I now part of that problem? Well, she laughed, But I think she did so only to avoid saying yes. Now look, I'm all for reducing the use of antibiotics to preserve their effectiveness. But on the other hand, you know, I was lying in a hospital bed with an infection that I was told could be dangerous. I just wanted to destroy those little microbes because, after all, this was no longer just a story in the newspapers, something abstract. This was me. This was my life. And in that bed, my priorities had shifted. Well, in my case, things turned out okay. The antibiotics vanquished my infection.
2: But it doesn't always work out that way. I'm Stephanie Strathy. I'm the Associate Dean of Global Health Sciences at the University of California, San Diego.
5: I'm Tom Patterson. I'm Professor of
3: Psychiatry at the University of California, San Diego. This couple became unwitting players in the scenario that I had morbidly joked about in my hospital bed.
1: Stephanie and Tom were on a boat on the Nile enjoying the last night of a vacation in Egypt and they were looking forward to exploring the Valley of the Kings the next day. And then Tom woke up ill.
5: You know, very severe stomach-like flu is the way I would describe it.
3: Thinking it was caused by something he ate, you know, Ramsey's revenge. He waited it out, but the symptoms got worse.
2: Tom was throwing up um, nonstop for, you know, about 24 hours and we called a doctor to the ship and the doctor gave him IV antibiotics and some fluids and said he's going to be feeling fine and he wasn't.
5: And then I started having severe pain in my stomach and it was radiating around me and uh, into my back.
2: He started complaining about back pain, and that wasn't adding up to anything that sounded like food poisoning. So although I don't have a medical degree, I, I have a Ph.D. in infectious disease epidemiology, and I knew we were in trouble, and so we had to get him to a clinic.
1: Tom later discovered that there were complications.
2: As it turns
5: out, I had a, an abscess the size of a small football that was caused by a gallstone that had gotten into my biliary duct, which is... Uh, part of your pancreatic system, they did say that I had pancreatitis, and that was what was causing the problem,
3: was making me ill initially. But he still didn't get better, so Stephanie and Tom sought out a second opinion in Europe. When I was air-vac to Germany, they determined that I actually had a a superbug. Tom was infected with one of the worst bacteria on the planet, a superbug called Acernita Baxter Bomania. Once a wimpy bacterium, it had become lethal through successive mutations, landing it on the World Health Organization's list of the 12 most deadly superbugs. The UN body has now declared antibiotic resistance a global health emergency. Now, we're talking in this episode about the consequences, sometimes quite delayed, of decades of antibiotic misuse worldwide. Stephanie and Tom's story shows us just how frightening and dire they are, but it has a second chapter. After all, we do know that Tom survived.
1: But at this point in the story, Tom is not out of the woods. He is lying very ill in a German hospital bed. Now, remember that a cyst had developed in his abdomen as a complication of the gallstone. And doctors told his wife that that cyst had become a cozy living space for this particularly nasty strain of bacteria.
3: Later, after it was sequenced, Stephanie learned it was an Egyptian strain. Tom might have picked it up at the clinic or in the yellow dust swirling around the pyramids. It's also found in soil throughout the Middle East, including Afghanistan and Iraq.
2: This organism is nicknamed Arachobacter because so many veterans are coming back from the Middle East with this infection. The doctors were really concerned because they said, look, you know, organisms that are acquired in the Middle East often have multidrug resistance. So we're going to culture this, but we're going to keep you in isolation until we really know what we're dealing with here.
3: So the obvious uh, treatment was to use antibiotics. I assume they did that. They tried.
2: Yes, but um, right off the bat, this organism was resistant to 15 different antibiotics and only partially sensitive to three. And by the time he was medevaced back to UC San Diego, where our doctors, who are our colleagues, were looking after him, it was resistant to even those. So now it was a fully multidrug-resistant organism that was not responding to any antibiotics in modern medicine. So they decided to poke these holes in his abdomen to try to siphon out... The gunk that was in this abscess. And for a while, that seemed to work. But uh, one day, he sat up in bed. We were actually supposed to be discharged the very next day. And one of the internal drains inside him slipped, and it dumped all of that infected purulent fluid into his abdomen and into his bloodstream. And he immediately went into septic shock right before my eyes.
3: So the prognosis was not a happy one.
2: Oh, no. He was rushed right back to the ICU, and he was put on life support. I was in a coma from the septic shock.
5: they had induced a coma for part of that time, but it was a natural coma after that.
2: And from then on, it, it, was, uh, it was looking very dire. He was slipping away day by day.
1: With a drug-resistant bug slowly claiming the life of her husband, the epidemiologist browsed the internet desperately, looking for alternative treatments. She came upon a surprise a description of a therapy regularly used 100 years ago in the pre-antibiotic era and still being used by some doctors today, phage therapy. Stephanie describes it like this. You have a miniature Godzilla, the bacterium, and we're sending in a miniature King Kong, a virus, to attack it.
3: So this is the second chapter of this science detective story. While Tom didn't know it, I mean, he was in a coma, He was about to become the first person in the United States to get intravenous phage therapy for a systemic superbug infection.
2: Bacteriophage, or phage for short, are viruses that have naturally evolved to attack bacteria. They're the oldest and most numerous organisms on the planet. It's thought that there's 10 million, trillion, trillion, that's 10 to the power of 31 phages on the planet. And they attack specific kinds of bacteria. So I researched this and found that phages had actually been used to treat bacterial infections for decades. But in the Western world, because penicillin and other antibiotics had come on the scene, they were forgotten. And they haven't been used here regularly for quite some time.
3: I understand that the first discovery of phages, or at least their effects, goes back about a century, but of course it took a while to figure out what they were because we didn't have microscopes that could actually see them a century ago. Uh, I think we do now. Can you sort of describe what a phage would look like? I guess you're, you know, generic phage?
2: Well, phages come in all shapes and sizes, but the most common one is a colophage that attacks E. coli, and they kind of look like a little spider from outer space. Um, They've got a 20-sided icosahedron head that looks a little bit like the Epcot Center at Disney World in miniature. They've got a long neck that's hollow, and they've got like spindly kind of legs that look like a spider, and they attach to a receptor on a bacterial cell, and they shoot their genetic material material through that neck into the bacterial cell and it takes over the bacterial cell turns it into a phage manufacturing plant as it were and then when given the kill signal these baby phages or virions are burst outside of the bacterial cell blowing it to smithereens and about 100 to 300 baby viruses are born and seek out their new bacterial prey
3: so It sounds like that would be a great way to combat an infection, but it's maybe not so simple because not all phages work against all bacteria. Is that correct?
2: Exactly. You know, it's kind of like the proverbial needle in a haystack, but times 10 to the power of 31. You have to find the exact phage to match the exact bacteria. And in Tom's case, it had to match Tom's specific bacteria. There are some bacteria that phages match more easily to, like MRSA. But in this case, we had to find now the right phage researchers with the right phages, and they had to go on a phage hunt.
3: And and how do you do that? I mean, did you take some of the bacteria out of Tom's body and then just... I don't know. Hit it with a, a gazillion phages. <laughs> well, maybe not a gazillion, <laughs> but a large number of phages that are sort of, you know, on hand to find out which one would successfully attack this, uh, you know, this pathogen.
2: Well, first I had to find the researchers. So I went back to the internet and found researchers that were studying Acinetobacter baumannii and phages. And I contacted them and some total strangers agreed to help, which was the first miracle. Then we sent them Tom's bacterial isolate and they looked to see whether any phages that they'd already identified and characterized were a match. But they also turned to environmental samples to look for phage that matched and in this case it was actually sewage and barnyard, you know, waste and things like that, because wherever you find a lot of bacteria, you find what preys upon them and the perfect predator is there in sewage. So I can literally say that my husband is fully, you know what?
3: Oh my goodness. All right. All right. So so you did find a phage that would attack his particular bacterium. And what do you do? Do you just inject them into his arm? I mean, how do you, how do you treat him?
2: Well, since Tom was fully colonized with this bacteria, that means it was everywhere. It wasn't just in his abdomen anymore. It was in his bloodstream. It was in his sputum. It was everywhere. So we realized that we had to treat him intravenously. And that was going to be very scary because even though phages have been used to treat bacterial infections for decades, it's typically not injected into people's bloodstream because it could induce septic shock. So the first preparation, which was prepared by Texas A&M University, we put those in the catheters and his abdomen because that was close to the source of the infection. And we thought, well, if he lives through this, we'll get the more potent phages, which actually the U.S. Navy developed this phage cocktail. We received those two days later and we injected those into his bloodstream at a billion phages per dose. And three days later, he actually woke up, lifted his head off the pillow, and kissed his daughter's hand, coming out of a deep coma that nobody thought he would ever come back from. We were very
5: privileged, I was very privileged, to be in the right place at the right time, when science was ready for this. All of the people all around the world, it was a not just a village, it was the entire world that came to my rescue. So we want to be sure that people understand how much we appreciate all of the time and energy and money that went into this how much longer was it
3: before you were uh, released from the hospital
5: well i spent a total of nine months in the hospital i had seven cases of septic shock i lost 100 pounds and had to learn to walk talk swallow everything i'd lost all my muscle mass That wouldn't have happened had phages been available early on, and I wouldn't have had to spend that much time in the hospital. So I'm what I like to call evidence-based hope that this therapy is really going to be the answer to superbugs.
3: And uh, I, I believe this experience helped to launch the Center for Innovative Phage Applications and Therapeutics at the University of California at San Diego, where you are. That's apparently the first phage therapy center in North America How promising do you see this kind of treatment? I mean, is it the answer to antibiotic resistance, uh, you know, which is, of course, one of the great problems facing medicine today?
2: Well, we don't think that phages are ever going to replace antibiotics, but they could become a very powerful adjunct to antibiotics. In fact, we are launching clinical trials to move phage therapy forward here at IPATH. That is the first dedicated phage therapy center in North America, and we're collaborating with many other centers and partners um, in the U.S. and elsewhere. But one of the things that was innovative about Tom's case is that we saw that the phages and the antibiotics, when they were attacking the bacteria simultaneously, that the bacteria had to make a genetic decision about how to mutate to avoid both of these predators. And it actually became sensitive to the antibiotic again. So we've seen this in other cases since, and it it holds hope that phage could actually make antibiotics work better, even though some are no longer being used because of the multi-drug resistance. So even that in and of itself is a game changer.
3: So if the right one don't get you, then the left one will. Exactly.
2: One, two, punch.
3: <laughs> one, two, What's really kept the use of phages uh, from being widely widely used here in the United States? I mean, they seem to use it much more in Europe. Is there some reason for that?
2: Well, certainly Eastern Europe, although now Western Europe is starting to use them more regularly too. The reasons why phage therapy was forgotten are very interesting. Really, what was happening is that phage were taken up very vigorously by the former Soviet Union, and this is around the time of World War II, and it was labeled as pinko commie science. So there was a real geopolitical bias. As well, phage have to be matched specifically to the bacteria, and that's pretty finicky. And when these antibiotics came on the scene that were broad spectrum they were treated as miracle drugs and for a time they really were but of course as time went on bacterial resistance has become a bigger and bigger problem so it's just now that people are turning back to phage and realizing that nature's own alternative to antibiotics might be one of the solutions
3: all the worlds of phage well finally thomas how do you feel these days I'm doing great. I'm uh, back
5: to work. We just uh, went on a trip down to Costa Rica birdwatching, and life is good. How could I say anything else?
3: (laughs) Well, I'm. I'm really glad to hear that, Stephanie Strathdee, Thomas Patterson. Thank you both very much for
2: being with us. Thanks very much. It's It's been a a pleasure. pleasure.
1: Tom Patterson is professor of psychiatry at the University of California, San Diego. Stephanie Strathy is the associate dean of global health sciences at the University of California, San Diego. And you can read more about their nine-month ordeal in their book, The Perfect Predator, A Scientist Race to Save Her Husband from a Deadly Superbug. Boy, what a scary story. I mean, it has a happy ending, but what a, a terrifying thing to go through.
3: But it is illustrative. After all, we were told by the developers of antibiotics that we have to use them with care. And if we don't, this is the kind of thing that can happen. Fortunately for me, in my case, the antibiotics were still working.
1: And phage therapy, how interesting. And it sounds like we pushed it aside when this wonder drug came along, when antibiotics came along. And so it wasn't developed properly in the West.
3: I I, I agree with you. It sounds like the dawn of a whole new approach to dealing with infectious disease. A new old approach. Yes. Well, we didn't heed the warnings of antibiotic misuse and we ignored a promising alternative. Any other lessons of history we're letting pass by? A medical historian says there are.
1: Drawing on the past to prepare for future pandemics. Next.
3: It's Battling Bacteria on Big Picture
1: Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan
3: we're talking about the double-edged sword of using antibiotics to battle infectious disease. Now let's get some historical perspective here. A bit of Greek etymology. The prefix epi means on, pan means all, and demos, people. So epidemic means on people, and pandemic means all people. Well, back when humans were hunter-gatherers, we didn't stay in one place long enough to pass on an all-people plague. But that changed when we created permanent settlements with animals. Suddenly, viruses and bacteria had many habitats in which to thrive.
1: Now skip ahead to when antibiotics came on the scene. Human suffering due to bacteria diminished considerably and lives were saved. But in the decades that followed, our zeal to quickly vanquish bacterial infection brought us to this point. The World Health Organization now grimly estimates that drug-resistant pathogens could kill 10 million people by 2050. It's a scenario that feels like a step back into the past, and it's hard to wrap our minds around massive mortality due to infection.
3: Unless you've studied the diseases that once caused widespread death, bubonic plague, typhoid, smallpox, or even the flu. The 1918 Spanish flu killed 50 million people. So it's easy to forget that infectious diseases can be as lethal as wars and natural disasters and the age of the pandemic isn't over.
6: Pestilences have a way of recurring in the world. I'm Mark Honigsbaum, I'm a medical historian and a lecturer at City University of London.
1: He says that while the medical establishment has more tools to track and combat disease, the public has historical amnesia in our battles against the bugs, and as a result, we become lax. And yet, we also panic when reports of new outbreaks travel faster than the pathogens themselves. The book by Dr. Honingsbaum, The Pandemic Century, 100 Years of Panic, Hysteria, and Hubris.
3: Mark, we've been talking about bacterial infection in this episode. And isn't it the case that the 1918 flu, which of course was a virus, also caused bacterial pneumonia? Do we know which was the real killer?
6: Well, well, that's an excellent question. And there have been a lot of studies, most recently by... The national institute for allergy and infectious diseases what most researchers have found uh, by going back and looking at old clinical case reports but also examining lung pathologies that were preserved from the epidemic is that there seemed to have been these super bacterial infections that followed the initial viral infection with influenza those were undoubtedly responsible for the vast majority of these virulent pneumonias that were seen in 1918 and essentially what we think happened is that the virus paved the way for common bacteria that reside habitually in the nose and throat to invade much deeper into the bronchial tubes, into the lungs, where they cause these superinfections and these very violent pneumonias.
3: Now, your book, The Pandemic Century, refers, of course, to the 20th century, but to what extent are pandemics still with us?
6: The book begins in 1918, or a little bit forward with polio outbreaks in 1916. And it ends with the Zika uh, outbreak in 2016. So when I was thinking about the pandemic century, that was the time frame. So yes, the 20th century, but if you like, the long 20th century. Of course, epidemics haven't gone away. There was one very large ongoing epidemic of Ebola in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So yes, I mean, epidemics and pandemics are not a thing of the past. And it could be that we see the same trends as in the 20th century continuing or accelerating.
3: In in any case, one thing we do have that's a little better than 1918 is the ability to detect pandemics before they've spread too widely. But it seems that the underlying rate of emergence of infectious diseases could even be increasing. And if so, why?
6: Yeah, I mean, that's right, I think. I think that is the case. I do think that we're seeing these events more frequently than in the past. However, I have to add a caveat, and it goes back to your comment that, you know, we're better at dealing with these things or we know more about these things. The problem is knowledge is kind of like a double-edged sword, right? Because we only know about the things that we know about, the things that we've studied in the past and seen before. And, of course, we can't know about the things we don't know about yet, But the same token, the fact that, you know, we've studied flu and other pathogens like Ebola intensively means we're in a better position to monitor and keep these outbreaks under surveillance. So that ability to sort of surveil the world and monitor things in a way that wasn't possible in the 19th century also makes us more aware um, and more likely to notice things that in the past may simply have gone, you know, unremarked on. I think a very good example of that is the 2009 swine flu pandemic. What you'll probably recall is there was huge kind of panic and hysteria. It was a major item in the news. Moms, uh, women who were expecting were urged to get the vaccine. And it was a new pandemic strain. But in the event, it didn't turn out to be nearly as, as severe as people thought it might be. And I can't help thinking that if we hadn't had all the technology, all the benefits of modern epidemiology and virology, we might just not have noticed that this new pandemic strain had emerged in this remote region of Mexico and then spread worldwide. It would just have been kind of mixed in with the usual flu illnesses we see every season. I see.
3: Well, let, let, let's look at one method of control when it comes to infectious diseases, and that's vaccines, of course. Vaccines being uh, one of the, if not the uh, greatest triumph of, of medicine, I, I would dare to say. we Absolutely. now <laughs> we, we now have the World Health Organization talking about vaccine hesitancy. Mark, is this because we no longer remember much about 1918, or for that matter, even smallpox, that collectively we no longer... Remember what these diseases can do?
6: Yes, I think that's absolutely right. There's kind of like a sort of a kind of cultural medical amnesia about you know these these scourges of the past. So if you think about the history of medical advances against infectious disease, um, we had you know the bacteriological revolution in the late 19th century going on into the early 20th so we had smallpox vaccine before that. But it really took off when we started to develop vaccines against cholera, anthrax, rabies. And then polio was a big advance, right? Polio was this terrifying disease because of the way it left children crippled or on iron lungs. So by the 1960s, two vaccines for polio came along. So parents in those days were familiar. They had grown up with the disease. They would most likely have friends or even family members who had been crippled by polio. So everyone knew what the risk, and the risks were visible and present in society. But that's no longer true, of course, for the present generation. Not just polio that's disappeared. I mean, very few people born today remember measles, right? Or or any of the other childhood diseases that, well, certainly I grew up with, and I, I assume you also grew up with. So what that means is people become complacent, right? It's a form of societal hubris, if you like. We're not worried about these things because we think, we don't need to worry about them anymore. and um, What people have forgotten is the only reason we don't need to worry is because we've had these very, very effective vaccines for most of the second half of the 20th century. We've known for a long time that bacteria can mutate,
3: at least as long as we've had antibiotics. Alexander Fleming, who, uh, of course, discovered penicillin, warned that the misuse of his discovery could result in drug-resistant bacteria, do you know if he imagined the emergence of anything like a a superbug? Uh,
6: so the person I think more significant in that regard is, is someone I write about or I mention in my book called René-Jules Dubot, who was a French-born, but he spent most of his career at the Rockefeller Institute in New York. And he was the first person to actually develop a commercial antibiotic. And that really triggered the industrial effort to develop um, all the antibiotics, really, that we still have today. But at the very instant that he discovered this antibiotic, it was actually discovered in the soil of a cranberry bog of all places. He wrote that, you know, it would result in other bugs breeding resistance to it. So he warned right at the very beginning, we've got to be careful because he predicted that overuse of these new agents would result in germs, bacteria developing resistant strains to them. So he was fully aware of that but you know um the message didn't really sink in at the time or for many decades afterwards i'm afraid
3: can one blame them for that i mean here you had an intervention as you call it that you know was actually kind of miraculous and mm. of course it's hard to think well think of the unintended consequences and you know i mean if somebody's sick you give them the the antibiotic you don't say well you know that's going to you're going to be a breeding ground for uh, for superbugs
6: Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it was the only thing available that made a difference. So inevitably, they were going to be used and it was right that they were used. Um, I suppose the problem becomes when they started to be ubiquitous in hospital environments, right, where often the most stubborn infections occur. But sort of more generally is the fact that antibiotics are not only very widely used in human populations, but are used in animal husbandry. Animals are pumped with, you know, hundreds of antibiotics every year. Well, Well, could we, I mean, this is a little bit naive, but could we unleash a bacterial pandemic? Is such a thing possible? I'm reluctant to use the word pandemic exactly. The problem with the word pandemic is it's usually reserved for an outbreak of a new disease. I mean, but what could happen is we could see a resurgence of all these diseases from the past, such as, you know, well, we're already seeing resurgent measles, but in terms of bacteria, you know, bacterial pneumonia was the leading cause of death in the Victorian period and even in the early 20th century if the antibiotics against bacterial pneumonias cease to work, or the bacteria that would treat, say, um, sepsis, right? I mean, in the past, you could die from a bee sting. Um, So we could if we see a resurgence of infections like that. Yeah, I don't think it's over alarmist to say that that could be analogous to a pandemic.
3: Well, finally then, Mark, pandemics are not uh, not going to be past tense. We're going to see them again. How do you see the future? What are we going to be able to do? What's
6: the game plan? Okay, well, first, the good news. I think the good news is that, you know, there's a huge effort now in the medical research community and public health this recognition that you know a global pandemic is one of the major risks we face collectively and that's why we need to invest in more medical research into vaccines such as the effort now going on to develop a universal flu vaccine but also into you know new uh, drugs or therapies to replace the antibiotics that are becoming obsolete okay the other good news is that scientists have also got much better at networking and sharing information rapidly, because what happens when an unknown pathogen suddenly emerges and causes this outbreak, as occurred in 2002 with the emergence of SARS in Hong Kong, is that if you don't share information rapidly, it's much harder to isolate the pathogen and develop interventions. So that's the good news. The bad news, of course, is that these emergence events appear to be happening more frequently. We have a huge problem of distrust of medical expertise. So one of the big problems with getting people to take the vaccine in the DRC is, as in California and other parts of the United States and Europe, where our populations are resistant to being vaccinated against measles, people in um, Africa and Asia are also distrustful of vaccines against Ebola. So I think we need a combination of things. We, we need to sort of not have this amnesia, you know, not to forget the lessons of the past, but also be aware that uh, we can't predict everything that's going to come along. So we need to be able to react rapidly, you know, share our expertise, really. Scientists need to collaborate and work together very quickly when a, a new pandemic emerges. Mark
3: Honigsbaum, thank you so very much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me.
1: Mark Honingsbaum is a medical historian, a journalist, and lecturer at City University in London. And he is the author of The Pandemic Century, 100 Years of Panic, Hysteria, and Hubris.
3: Well, it's another demonstration of how plastic uh, biology is. No matter what you do, no matter how high-tech your tools to battle infection and stuff like that, uh, nature always finds a way to come back at you.
1: That's right. And once we develop the tools to combat that plasticity, whether it's antibiotics or vaccines, and we discover that it works, then we develop a kind of complacency and historical amnesia that talk about vanquishing, that we do need to vanquish if we're going to battle these bugs in the future.
3: Yes, we've collectively forgotten what measles and mumps can do, and that plays out in nefarious ways today.
1: Thank you to the highly adaptive production instincts provided by senior producer Gary Niederhoff, assistant producer Sarah Derwin, and operations manager Barbara Vance. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
3: Thanks also to financial support from Reno Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose scientists study the origins and nature of life, including exoplanets and how we might find life on Mars. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, and I do my best to combat infectious humor. Also, big thanks to our listeners.
1: Your ears have been attuned to an episode of Big Picture Science that is called Battling Bacteria. And you can hear more episodes of Big Picture Science in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. You will also find links there to the guests you heard.
3: You may be listening to our radio show, but if you want BiPiSci to comport with your peripatetic lifestyle, why not also subscribe to the Sci podcast so that you never miss an episode. You'll find links on our website to the platforms that carry us.